few weeks ago, while appearing on a podcast to promote my new book, I made a joke about having big news. Here's exactly what I said. I, I think I just mentioned it, but you've got some pretty big news. Yesterday was your, uh, uh, I'll let you take it from there. I am pregnant. I oh my gosh. I've been for a long time and I finally was able to break through and it is a big Holy sh Holy shit. That was not, not what I was expecting. I thought we could make history on this show and I could be the first pregnant man in America. I thought nothing of it. And then a day or two after it aired, a transgender reporter expressed displeasure, explaining how the comment was to them tone deaf and disrespectful and just not cool. And my initial reaction, to be honest, fuck that bullshit. It was just a freaking joke. Clearly, I wasn't thinking of anything having to do with transgenders. Give me a break. But then I thought about it and thought about it, about how things are construed, about different perspectives, about being a kid and hearing a Jewish joke and having the teller say, you're not offended, right? And the truth is, as people, and especially as journalists, we need to be open to new ideas, to new perspectives, to not just burrowing down with what we've known forever, to not getting instinctively defensive. We need to evolve, to empathize, to understand, and most of all, we need to grow. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode stars Shannon Sims, the Bloomberg New Economy and Government Editor for Latin America, and a scribe whose improbable journey has taken her from law school to inner city teacher, to Italian hotel employee, to Washington Post freelancer, to an international journalist who has seen and covered it all. This is episode number 177. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. All right, Shannon, first of all, thank you for doing this. Are you drinking alcohol during this podcast? This is a classy espresso, thank you very much. <laughs> all right, just checking. Wait, so there are a million things I want to ask you about, but I'm fascinated because I just said to you, we were talking a little bit before this started, and you said you're going off to cover a hurricane. And um, what is it? to prepare to go off to cover a hurricane? It's kind of hardcore, actually, it, because you're basically preparing for the unknown. But the unknown could mean you're in a situation with no food, no water, no access to gas, no access to energy, no access to a cell line. So I have a satellite phone. I have waders, like hunting waders. Um, I have like a, a huge amount of beef jerky. Um, and like sunscreen and mace and it's, it's kind of all all over the place but it's the kind of situation where you always want to bring like more than you need and like I'll I'll pack my car up with a ton of water too and because even if you don't need it somebody out there is probably going to need it so I want to be able to be like a helpful source when I'm out there. Right so my takeaway from this is if you love beef jerky cover a hurricane. Yes, yes. If you love sleeping in your car and eating beef jerky alone, then this is a great gig. <laughs> Wait, so you're, you're in Houston. Where exactly are you going? And how much, when you're covering a hurricane, obviously nobody knows exactly precisely the path it's going to take. Like, where are you going? Okay, so I'm actually going, and part of the reason why I'm covering this hurricane, which is not necessarily my beat, is because it is slated to hit Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is where I grew up. It's the, a shit kind of town in Southwest Louisiana, pardon my French, um, but that's just happens to be the place where I spent my childhood, and so I know, know it really well. I know a ton of people there, and it is the place that got completely demolished during Hurricane Laura six weeks ago, 
and now Hurricane Delta is slated to hit the same area. So it's like a um, kind of an uh, incredible, terrible story about climate change and about just a community just getting like slammed again and again. And like, at what point do you just decide this place is uninhabitable? But in terms of like, I'm still, it's like an hour to hour thing figuring out where I should stay or if I should go in afterwards, you know, there's like the risk if you stay close to the place where the hurricane's going to make landfall is that you, you know, are riding out a hurricane, which is not great. Um, but then the risk of not staying inside is that it's impossible to get in because power lines are blocking the roads or things are flooded or whatever. So that's what I'm trying to sort out right now. Wait, so you, um, you were hired somewhat recently by Bloomberg to be the uh, yes. government editor for Latin America. Yes. <laughs> so you're stuck in Houston, Texas. Are you just sitting here right now trying to come up with ideas and stories? No. So this is ab- abnormal, what's going on right now. So yeah, I was hired in March by Bloomberg. I had always been a really big fan of their coverage in Latin America. I felt like the team was really awesome and they recruited me to be an editor. And so I was very happy to join in March and I was going to get my visa, which was going to take about three months. And then I was going to move to Brazil and it was all going to be great. And then COVID happened. And so I was only in the office for three days here in Houston and then everything shut down. It shut down the day that I brought in my mug. (laughs) I like had to go home with the mug. (laughs) Wait, what kind of mug was it? I think that's important. Oh, a cute little owl mug. I came in with the owl mug and I also came in with uh, my first, cause you have to, I've been a freelancer this whole time. So I've never worked in an office. Yeah. So I was like, so happy. It was like a kindergartner on like the first day of school. I was like psyched. I had a, my lunch bag. I had my mug. And then like at noon they were like, okay, everyone needs to take all their things and go home. Wow. <laughs> when I'm going to throw something at you, I'm going to throw an idea at you. Tell me if you're with this. Yeah. The other day, Trump said that, getting uh, COVID might have been God, a thing from God. Right. I am throwing it out there that maybe COVID is God saying you are not meant to work in an office. I, I know. I was just like, obviously the universe could tell I was like an imposter in this situation. And they were just like, no, we're shutting this down. <laughs> when you go to cover a hurricane, have you covered hurricanes before? Yes, I have before. But more importantly, I've lived through a bazillion hurricanes. Right, so your family isn't like, what the fuck, don't cover the hurricane. Like, don't go chasing a hurricane. No, my mom wants to come with me. She's like, it sounds exciting. I can drive. I was like, mom, this isn't like a vacation. That's like an (laughs) 80s buddy movie. I'm actually considering it, though, because she's like, I can navigate. I can make sure that we have food. You know, I can, like, sort out the stuff or make calls if you don't have time. She's, like, selling it. But obviously, this this is clearly, like... A consequence of COVID where she's like, literally, I will go anywhere if I can get out of the house, be it a hurricane and a crappy motel in Louisiana, I'm going. <laughs> and you've had this really sort of itinerant career where you've been all over the place and covered a million different things. And I haven't really talked to a journalist about this. Is the stillness of COVID killing you? Like, are you losing your mind? You know, <laughs> I was like, this is going to be tough for me. But then I knew it was really tough when I found like, all of my closest friends were like regularly calling to check in on me like, hey, Shan, you okay over there? Like, they were like, you're used to traveling like internationally, like once a week. You're like used to reporting on the ground all of the time. And so they were all just like, yeah, we're a little bit concerned about you. (laughs) Like, how are you doing? So, I mean, in the beginning, I was definitely feeling straight up depressed, like a lot of people. 
Um, and I was feeling like I was having to kind of redefine myself because I've always been like the person on the go and the person like with an amazing story to bring back. And I would like talk to people and have like nothing to tell them for the past three weeks of my life, you know? Yeah. So it was, it was an adjustment, but honestly, I feel like, um, in my case, it, it was really like a blessing. I was, by the time COVID started, I was experiencing like exhaustion for real from all of the travel. Um, and it had just like built up over the years for me. And I think I, I really did need a break. And then also, you know, I'm almost never home. So I almost never, I'm almost never in Houston. So I never see my friends. I never see my family. So it's been kind of neat to just like be able to be still and hang out here and like get on a workout routine and like eat meals at normal times and not when I'm like walking or on a bus, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. so I've been trying to make the most of it. So usually when I do these, I, I try to bullshit my way and pretend I know stuff I don't, but I'm actually going to read straight off your bio. And this podcast generally isn't a sort of, this is your life step-by-step -step thing, but I think you've definitely had a very weird career, which fascinates me. Let's not read this real quick. I was born in Turkey, raised in the Gulf Coast of Louisiana and Texas. Before journalism, I taught elementary school in Harlem, ran a hotel in Italy. I currently spend most of my time in Houston, New Orleans, and Rio. I earned a Bachelor of Arts in International Politics and Women's Studies from Pomona College. Law degree, University of Texas, specialize in international environmental law with a focus on coastal environments. Speak fluent English, Italian, Portuguese, and Spanish. You're obsessed with music, especially samba and sports, especially the 93 to 95 Rockets. Yep. What the hell, like, <laughs> what are you even doing here? Like, what? You're this, so you're, you're some student at Pomona College, and you're like, I'm going to get my law degree. <laughs> what are you doing here? I don't know. I ask myself that a lot of the time, especially now that I'm like working for a professional journalism organization and I'm like a journalist for real, real. Um, a lot of the time I'm like, do they know what like about me? Do they realize that they hired somebody who's never taken a single class of journalism in her life? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm like a, I have itchy feet for sure. Um, I love bouncing from one thing to another and I feel like I have been extremely blessed and lucky to be able to have the opportunity to have such a varied career. I mean, um, at any given point, whatever I was doing was exactly what I wanted to be doing at that time. And a lot of people don't have the opportunity to be that way. I, it's a risky way to live life. You know, I've had many periods of my life where I have zero dollars in the bank or where, you know, I'm, I feel very lonely because I'm in Zanzibar for the third week or something, you know, but I wouldn't give any of it up. I feel like all of those wild jumps from one thing to another led me to where I am today. And I'm extremely happy where I am today. So I, I don't think I would have gotten here otherwise. Um, Wait, but I need, I need to understand you're, you're at the university of Texas. Yeah. Just, I'm going to get a law degree. I get a degree right. with a focus on coastal environments. How do you become a journalist off of that? How does that even happen? Yeah, uh, it was very random. So basically, I wanted to do, uh, so I had been working at this hotel in Italy on an island. And Why? we were talking, <laughs> okay, because I fled my life before that, which was being a fifth grade teacher in Spanish Harlem, which I was like, woefully unprepared for. And, and that's the hardest job anyone could ever have. Um, so I did that for a year. And then right after that ended, I got an email from a contact I had in Italy because I had studied abroad there several times. And they were like, 
we want to open a hotel, but we have no idea what we're doing, but we have this huge like old monastery and we don't know what to do with it. Do you think you could help? And so I was just like, that sounds like a better idea than going back to the classroom. So I went there and opened this hotel uh, that was on the coast and was living my best life and like swimming in the ocean every morning and riding a Vespa around the island. And then after being there for a while, I just felt like my intellectual side was like not really being as stimulated as I wanted it to be. And I was like having a little bit of pressure from my parents like, hey, what do you, what's the plan here? Like, what are you doing exactly? Um, Wait, how old were you uh, at this point? I was in my 20s, so I guess I was uh, 24, maybe. And do you think part of that is, like, parents really want to tell their friends, oh, so-and-so, she's in law school, or she's at this, and she's doing that? 100%. 100%. Also, my mom's Italian. Uh, even though I learned Italian myself, she had um, emigrated from Italy, and... Um, for her, it was bizarre. She like kind of fled Italy to come to the U.S. And so for her, it was bizarre that I would then go the other direction and be like spending time there. So like her worst nightmare in life was that I was going to like get engaged to a guy named Giuseppe and never come back, um, which almost happened. <laughs> so as a result, I left the island. But from that experience, I got just really interested in like coastal law and how the coast is managed and like what makes it okay for a hotel to be built here and not there or um, I really am interested in environmental issues. I still do a lot of environmental stuff in my reporting. And so that was like the hook. And I chose law school mostly because I took the entry test to get an MBA and I like bombed the math portion. So I was like, all right, let me do like, is there an easier one that doesn't have math? Oh, there's this thing called an LSAT. Okay, I'll do that. Um, and I kind of took it just to get my mom off my back. And then I crushed it. And so then I was getting like scholarship offers and stuff. So I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to law school now. So I kind of stumbled into law school in the first place. And then while I was in there, I was just having a lot of like internal disconnect. I'm going to law school because I believe in the idea of justice. And I believe in like the goodness of the legal system. And I'm sitting, you know, with peers who are like, I came here to do corporate law because I'm trying to make as much money as I possibly can. And I just felt very much like I'd like walked into the wrong room for three years. You have a moment a year and a half or two years into law school where you're like, what did I just do with my two years? Why am I stuck in this? Big time, big time. But I had too much ego to quit. If I was financially savvy, I'd be like, cut my losses. I'm out of here. This is way expensive for a thing that I'm not enjoying, but I don't quit shit. <laughs> so it's like, I'm going to get this degree if it's the last thing I do. I did not enjoy law school at all. It was hard. I worked really, really hard, but I mean, it's not an easy activity for three years. Um, so anyways, I was kind of already trying to plot out an escape afterwards. And so after my first year of law school, I asked my favorite professor, my constitutional law professor, I want to do international environmental law as like my clerkship this summer. Like, where would I go do that? How would I do that? And he was like, I don't have any idea, but there's this guy you should talk to who does that at University of Texas, the law school I was at. The person I went to go talk to happened to be a Supreme Court justice in Brazil. Wow. And so he was like, if you can get the funding, I can hook you up with a clerkship done in Brazil with the Ministry of the Environment. And I had never been to Brazil. I didn't have any connection to Brazil. And that was the first time I went to Brazil. And I just feel like that was like a really hinge moment in my life because now I'm considered like a Brazil expert and Brazil is an integral part of my life. Um, but if that professor had been Japanese, I would have gone to Japan. 
And then once I landed in Brazil, I was like, oh, this is pretty much perfect for me. I love that it's like a chaotic, messy, joyous, sexy place. It's just like so vibrant. Like all of the stereotypes about it are like, are pretty true. Um, and it's just like a really fun place. So I was there for that clerkship. And then my last year of law school, I had a corporate gig lined up at a law firm in Miami, having never been to Miami. And I won at the 11th hour, I won a two-year fellowship to go to Brazil and study forests for two years and write about it. So my my work product was a written report once a month to an internal committee, but I had an editor for that report. And, and a lot of the people who come out of that fellowship, it's, it's the fellowship is called the Institute of Current World Affairs, and I would recommend it to anyone. Um, but a lot of people who come out of that go into journalism because you end up being like, you've spent two years on the ground in a country. So you like have picked up language skills. You've picked up deep understanding of a place that other people might not have. And you've been writing with an editor. And so journalism is like a natural transition out of that. And I was still planning to go back to be a lawyer, but the timing of my fellowship is that it ended like a month before the world cup began in Brazil. And I was like, I don't want to leave right before the world cup. This is going to be amazing. (laughs) And so I was like, but I have zero money. How do I do this? And so I was like, maybe I can do some journalism stuff, you know, like I'm, you know, cause I couldn't like get a job in Brazil cause I didn't have a work visa. So I just started writing some journalism stuff and my journalism career took off quickly within a year. I was writing for the Washington post. Wait, first of all, I love that you call it journalism stuff, but how did you, um, how did that happen? Because I think like a lot of people are, have been in your shoes and it's like, yeah. oh, and then I start writing for the Washington Post and I think there's not to be, go fuck yourself. What does that even mean? Yeah, I hear that. So basically uh, I started with a like startup um, journalism organization out of Silicon Valley called Ozzy that I absolutely hate <laughs> and would never recommend to anyone go work there. It was like a sweatshop for writers kind of situation. So I started writing, they wanted somebody covering South America. So I started writing kind of fun, like boop, boop. I wrote a piece about hot dogs in Brazil, like whatever kind of quirky random stuff, click, clickbait kind of stuff, I guess. And um, out of that, I, I just started I guess, you know what, honestly, the reason I started writing for the Washington Post is because I'm crazy and I like don't know the rules of journalism. I don't, I didn't realize at that time how big a jump it is to jump into the Washington Post. I was just pitching them. You're almost like too dumb to know any better. Exactly. I would look up an article and find the author and then like try to find their email and then email them and be like, hey, I want to write an article like you did. What do I do? And they're like, what even is this? What is this email? And so a lot of the time, a lot of, most of the time they wouldn't respond. 90% of the time they wouldn't respond. But then sometimes they'd be like, uh, if you want to pitch a story, you need to contact this editor. And then I would like write the editor and I wouldn't even be pitching a story because I didn't really have a story. I'd just be like, hey, what's up? My name's Shannon. I'm in Brazil. Like, do you want me to write any stories for you about Brazil <laughs> and I think yeah, I know so, but I think that uh, I also struck at a good moment Brazil at that moment was really in the spotlight uh, it had just had the World Cup it was like about to impeach their president they were about to have the Olympics you know so it was like kind of in a steady stream of the news cycle also Brazil is a place where it's you know they speak Portuguese not Spanish so it's not so easy to find a reporter who's fluent and knows the country really well. But honestly, I, I would qualify it as dumb luck. 
Um, and you're right. I just like, I didn't know the rules. I didn't know what you were supposed to do. So I just like got to the place I wanted to be by not knowing the rules. You didn't speak Portuguese before you went to Brazil initially. No, no. And did you deep dive immersion into Portuguese? Yeah. I mean, I, I've never taken a Portuguese class either. I, the way that I spoke Spanish and Italian beforehand, and I'm pretty good at picking up languages, I think. And Portuguese, you know, if you speak Spanish and Italian, I would say you're two thirds of the way there. So I didn't have a lot to learn. And the learning that I did was mostly like by necessity, like I need to get this bus and figure out where it's going and then get to this place. And it's just like, when you're in like a high stress situation like that, you like remember the word for boarding or whatever, you know, like once you miss a flight, you like remember how to do it the next time. So that's also I dated a Brazilian. (laughs) That helps. Yeah, that helps. So that first Washington Post byline, how long ago was that? That was 2016. It's four years ago. Yeah. Jesus Christ, that's a freaking rapid and weird career and such a, like, <laughs> you know what's funny? I'm going to tell you something. It's going to sound like an insult, but it's a total compliment. I was reading the story, which is the original reason I even found you and wanted to talk to you, and it was for Bloomberg about uh, Houston and its reaction to the pandemic, right? Yeah. You are, like, your writing is like a total, like, if I were comparing you to a baseball player, you're like a pitcher who throws, like, a slurve knuckler, and it's like, wait, I don't quite get what this pitch is doing. Like, your writing is, so, is really unconventional. In fact, we'll just go into this story so I can explain better. But you wrote a piece that I thought was just great and awesome and, and fantastic. It just came out earlier this month. Houston had an all-American pandemic response. Ignore until it's too late. I just want to read your lead real quick. You wrote, it's Friday night in Houston, 930, uh, 102 degrees Fahrenheit, 90% humidity, and the patio at Flava Restaurant and Bar is packed. Friends are sucking on hookahs. Waitresses hustle by in booty shorts. Someone climbs on a picnic table to twerk. The place looks over capacity. Owner Lewis Watson knows it. Houston COVID Task Force Chief Keith Kennedy knows it. And judging from the expression on his face when Kennedy rolls down his tinted window, the valet knows it too. In the rearview mirror, I watch a valet hustle over to the bouncer who calls Watson over from his perch on a railing beside the DJ. By the time Kennedy, who's also the chief arson investigator for the Houston Fire Department, has parked and made his way into the entrance, Watson is outside with a light blue folder spread open on the hood of a matte black Jeep Wrangler. When the pandemic started, Watson was a young black businessman coming out into his own with a corner property on the Richmond Strip. His main concern now is no longer just beating the competition, it's also avoiding being shut down or fined into extinction by the tangle of rules officials have deemed necessary to keep Houstonians from dying of COVID-19. Okay, there's a million things here that fascinate me, just the writing alone. Number one, you throw yourself into it. Nine out of 10 journalism professors would be like, there's no reason to put yourself in the story. You can't put yourself in the story, which of course is stupid. You should do whatever the hell you want. Number two, you overload it with details. And a lot of professors would be like, no, you're putting too many details. It's too much. You're going to make the reader work, which is total bullshit. It's sort of like, you're just like, I'm just going to lay it out here. This is my experience. I'm putting it out there. And it winds up being really, really, really freaking good. But it's not something like you would get in journalism school. That's a compliment, not an insult. (laughs) Well, thank you. I read this story. And I thought at the end, even though you don't say my city's response to COVID pisses me off, you don't literally say it. What I came away from this is thinking it probably pissed her off. Like she, she seems kind of, there's an anger behind this story. That's a good question. If there's an anger behind the story, um, you know, I try to be like objective, right? I try to not have an angle. And the way the story came about is that the editors of Business Week. I mean, basically, we're in this super weird moment in journalism where we're needing to cover COVID and nobody wants to read about COVID, right? <laughs> so, so it's like this weird scenario. And the editors of Business Week, who I've worked with a million times and I really like working with them, they contacted me. They were like, 
Hey, Shannon, <laughs> you're in Houston and it's becoming an epicenter. How about you write a story about COVID for us from Houston? And I was like, what am I even going to write about? It's just going to suck. It's just going to be like the hospitals are full and people are dying and sadness everywhere and it's hot. And they were like, yeah, something like that. <laughs> Go for it. Uh, and so I actually was filled with dread when I got this assignment because I was like, man, I'm like walking the plank here. There's like no way this is going to come out like a tasty piece of writing. And I was really quite paralyzed. And the editor knows me well enough that he called me out on it. He called me on the phone, like the senior editor of this, called me on the phone like a Friday afternoon. And he's like, uh, I'm guessing right about now you're totally paralyzed and unable to write or even think about what you want to report. Is that correct? And I was like, yes. I was like almost crying in my car right when he called me too because I was just like, this is going to like detonate my career, you know. Um, and he was just like, look, we want you to do this because you know Houston and we just want you to do a walk around story. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. I don't know what that means. And he's like, it's a story where you're not, it's not like a thesis. It's not like you're making a point or doing a profile. You're walking around a place and literally just bringing the reader to that place. Mm -hmm. And so that's the reason that I did the lead in that way, because I was just, what's the fastest way for me to get the reader to Houston right now? And I was just like, I'm just going to put them right there on the patio with me. It's 930. We're on the patio. This is what's happening. Um, I also hesitate to use first person and I was actually directed by my editors to use first person, which I argued about. Wow. I was just like, I don't want to, you know, they told me they were like, write this like a New Yorker piece. This isn't, this isn't a typical Bloomberg piece. We want you to do a heartfelt look at your city and what it feels like right now in your city. So getting back to your question about if I had an anger I would say the word is more like frustration. Also, I hadn't really taken a step back look at exactly what was going on systemically in the city. You know, I was just in my world and hearing businesses are closed or businesses are open or like driving up someplace and it'd be closed. But I hadn't really been so tuned in to what was going on citywide. And I think I wasn't angry. And then as I started doing the reporting and started talking to people, I was getting more and more angry. Just seeing people whose lives were getting just devastated right and left. Um, and it, it didn't need to be that way. And there was like no plan to not let that happen. Uh, so yeah, I did, I did start getting more and more angry as I did the writing. <laughs> you get assigned this story and obviously you're, you're, it seems like you're rolling around with the COVID task force guy, Keith Kennedy. How did you even go about making that happen? Yeah, I actually asked my editor, I was like, so I was thinking about maybe doing like a ride along. And he's like, he was basically like, you don't need to work that hard. Just like, tell us the story of what you're seeing. Like, this, you don't have to like do the, you know, quote unquote reporting like that. But I ignored what he said, because I was just like, I want to see what they're seeing. Like, what is this a COVID task force? Like, what are they doing? And so I just contact the mayor's office. And I asked if I could do a ride along with anyone, with the fire department or with the police or whoever was dealing with COVID. And I pretty quickly got to the chief of the COVID task force, which I didn't even know existed. And he was very welcoming to have me on the ride along. I think because for them, it's been difficult to explain what their job is during COVID and that, and that they're not bad guys. I think he was welcoming of the opportunity. So it, it was just a hilarious ride along too. I'm just like sitting in the cruiser with him and we're going from hot spot to hot spot until like 1am on a Saturday night. It, it was a surreal experience, but I was really happy that I 
went ahead and pushed to do that, I, I always tell journalists that I really suggest ride-alongs whenever you can, because it just gives you a lens that, that a normal civilian doesn't have access to. I always say one of the best assignments in my life as a young reporter at the Nashville Tennessean was the, uh, the Nashville police called and said, we're trying to do a prostitution sting at a, at a hotel. Yes. Um, can we send a reporter? I was like, there's no answer, but yes. There's yes. no answer, but yes. Of Everything course. Like, uh, you're going to have an amazing scene no matter how it turns out. Yeah. Were you at all nervous about COVID? I mean, you're driving along, you're going into these hotels. Yeah. There. Isn't your, aren't your parents like, what the hell are you doing? Yeah, I mean, the the negative of doing this reporting is that I like couldn't see my parents and I couldn't be around them, So, which was uh, kind of frustrating because I started being around them, started kind of enjoying being around them. Yeah. Um, but we just decided, I just told him, I was like, I'm. we need to assume I'm exposed as long as I'm doing this story. Bloomberg shipped me out at a bunch of N95s, which I appreciated, and then tried to be smart. So like at one point in the story, I talked about how I went to this nightclub that was like, packed and like I looked in the window like a little kid I like was up on my tippy toes looking in the window of this club and it looked like party like it's 1999 in there it was like full of like fog and like totally packed and I just saw like silhouettes you know and like the sparklers coming out of champagne bottles and I was like I'm not going in (laughs) I'm not going to go into that situation you know so I tried to keep my dis I also didn't go into the hospitals I was just like, I'm not going to do that. I can talk to the hospital administrator. I can talk to the doctors, but I don't need to be in the ER, you know? So it was a lot, it was like kind of calculating the, doing the risk calculation of like, is this worth the value of it? Before we continue with two writers slinging yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's both a huge 503 sports fan and in the middle of reading Othello for her English class. So Casey, I'm going to say some names and you tell me the Othello equivalent. Thou asketh. New Jersey General's owner, Donald Trump. Profane wretch art thou. Vice President Mike Pence. Profane wretch art thou. Mitch McConnell. Profane wretch. Ted Cruz. Profane wretch. Lindsey Graham. Profane wretch. The hats, sweatshirts, and throwback jerseys you can find at 503-sports.com. I don't really know how to say awesome in Shakespearean prose. God, you're such a disappointment. And you, Father, are a profane wretch. You need a new book. Are you, is it hard for you or are you good at this as far as um, interviewing people who are idiotic about stuff? Like if you're interviewing someone who's like, COVID, I don't think it's a big deal at all. Why are you wearing a mask? That's so stupid, blah, 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 blah. I'm sure you've encountered people like this in your career. Also just people who are complete and total you know, morons. I actually love it. Tell me why. I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Because sometimes when I'm a reporter, I feel like I'm, if I'm talking to somebody who I agree with, I'm just like, yeah, yeah, sure does suck. And it's just like not super stimulating to me. When I'm talking to somebody who's saying something crazy, it's like all of my little brain stimuli are tingling. And I'm like, Woo, this is excellent. And, and I'm like, keep a normal face, keep a normal face, keep a normal, you know, like I have to tell myself that, like, don't roll your eyes. That's actually the thing I love most about journalism, and that's the kind of journalism I like doing the most, is that journalism gives you a costume in order to talk to people who you would never talk to and have a real, actual conversation as if you were one of them. And I love that. And I especially love that reporting down in the South, because you get a wide variety of opinions down in the South. And it's amazing because I, I'm kind of chameleon-like. And so a lot of the time people will 
assume I'm one of them. I've talked to like guys who are like super racist and they'll talk to me like, you know what I mean? You know, and, and I'll just be, cause I want them to say what they really mean. And so I'll be like, yeah, yeah, man. Right. You know, whatever, like kind of, I guess it's kind of egging them on, but mostly I'm just wanting them to be as transparent with me as they possibly can. Um, so that I can like get to the heart of, of what they really think and feel. And I, those are my favorite moments in journalism. Now, is it, because I've had these moments too. I've had moments in my career where a guy just assumes I'm another white guy who's like, is there a line between getting the person to open up to you and egging the person on in a uh, yeah. unethical way? Yeah, I, I am very aware of that. I actually think my law degree helps me with that because like ethics are, are very much at the front of my mind when I'm doing reporting. And in those situations, I'm always just thinking, the reason I'm talking to this person is not so they tell me what I want to hear, but so they tell me what they think. Mm -hmm. And so my job is to not get in the way of that. And so if they're not telling me what they think because they think I'm going to judge them or they think I'm going to like say something back, then that's like not a successful conversation in my view. You know, it's like, I want them to be able to like sit on a bench with me and be like, here's what I really feel. This is why I'm angry. This is why I'm happy. And as long as that's happening, I don't think me asking, you know, follow on questions is egging on. I'm not trying to get somebody to say something they don't feel. I'm trying to get them to say something they do feel. It's so interesting because um, this profession is something of a sales job because you are oh, yeah. to, because you're trying to convince someone to open up and you're also trying to convince them in a way to forget that their words are going to appear, you know, like it's a weird. 100%. I really feel like it's like wearing a costume a lot of the time. And I even will dress for the job. So sure. like when I'm down in the bayou in, in Louisiana, I loosen up my accent and pull back out my Louisiana accent that I normally need to like suppress for professional life. And, um, you know, I know you call people miss, so I'll, you know, miss Tressie. I was talking to miss Sally and she was saying, you know, whatever, you know, when I wear jeans and, and I drive this old beat up car that my parents have, I don't drive my car, not that my car is so nice, but you know, I, I like just try to like be as neutral mm -hmm. as possible um, when I'm going into a, a situation. And I feel like if people think I'm one of them, they're probably going to be more open with me versus if I come in, especially in the South, the reputation is like a New Yorker comes tromping in with a leather jacket on and black jeans and is like wanting to hear about my life. I'm not going to talk to a New Yorker about my life. You know, they don't, they don't get it. Like they need to go back to the East coast. And so th that's like the scenario where I feel like I'm at a real advantage because I can speak with those people in a way that an outsider can't. Have you had, um, what the fuck calls? Like I thought, what the fuck, you know, like we were, I thought we were just talking or I thought blah, blah, blah. Oh my God. No, you know what the best, <laughs> the best is that, when I've written stuff that you or me or, you know, other people would probably think is negative about someone, I always send my articles to the people and they always love it. Funny. That's something I'm really proud of. I feel like that's like a success for me when, when I have written somebody in a way that they're like, that's true. I did say that. Right. And that's what I mean. That's exactly what I mean. You know? So like I wrote a whole story for the guardian about, people in South Louisiana who don't believe in climate change, even though their lives have been destroyed twice by hurricanes. And so they said stuff that's kind of heavy. They're like, climate change is a hoax. 
and nobody believes it and you know da 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 and then when it runs in print they're like yeah that's right it is a hoax <laughs> you know so right. i love i love doing that here you are and you're someone who's passionate about climate issues and you're mm -hmm. covering people who who are getting ravaged by climate change whose lives are being worsened by climate change and they're telling you climate change is a hoax yeah is there any little part of you that wants to say come on i mean seriously do you not, do really you know what I do? A little like trick that I've picked up, which maybe they teach in journalism school, so it's maybe not some kind of innovation I've come up with. But what I do, they'll say climate change is like made up. You know, it's just the left wing just trying to lie to us and get us to close our businesses. And and I'll say, yeah, you know, I was I was listening to like a, the left wing, and they were saying, you know, it's not about closing the businesses, but they said that actually it's because you know the damage that it's wreaking on on communities like this, you know, and that it's going to increase because climate change is making storms stronger. Like, do you think they're right? I'll do it like I'll frame it like somebody else said this. Like, what do you think about that? I, I never frame it as like what I think. I'm I'm my opinion is always not present. Wait, I have a story you wrote from 2018, November 30th, 2018, New York Times. Oh boy. Rwandan women paddle into the male world of fishing. My favorite thing is the, the woman in the photo in Rwanda paddling, I believe is wearing a St. John's Red Storm jersey. I don't know how to that. It appears she's wearing a St. John's jersey. And um, your lead was, in the evening, the green leaves of the verdant hills of Lake Kivu turned black against the orange sky and a calm settled across the water. And then, out of the silence, came a call. Here we go. May God watch over us. It is a refrain that is a tradition here on Lake Kivu where for generations men have cast out at sunset in small wooden boats to fish through the night. But that night, it was chanted by women. It's a beautiful story. I guess it's like a twofold question. What the fuck are you doing in Rwanda? And how, does <laughs> story even, how do you even know to write this story? I got lucky again with that. So I went to Rwanda as, part, as a fellowship grantee of the International Women's Media Foundation, which is this awesome organization that um, provides grants for female journalists to go and do journalism that you know, maybe would be considered like dangerous or that um, normally they like wouldn't be able to feel like they could do as freelancers, especially. Mm -hmm. And so they, uh, so that was a trip to Rwanda. It was like 12 other journalists, only me, maybe me and one other person were writers, but they were like photo and audio and um, all kinds of people on the team. And we went out there and our assignment was to come up with three stories about Rwanda and I wanted to write stories about energy. And so I pitched three stories about a wind farm and this and the new like solar system on a maternity hospital and, and whatever. I found these like, this is like random Googling to find potential story ideas for a place that I'd never been and never had any thought that I was ever going to go. And then I got there on the ground and started reporting out those stories and like the wind farm didn't exist. <laughs> and the, you know, person who I was interviewing for the maternity ward, he got up to go to the bathroom and then my fixer saw him drive away in a car. So, like, so it was like all of the stories were just like, like within 24 hours of arriving in Rwanda, all three of my stories were dead. So I was like, okay, I'll need to be starting over now so that they don't feel like I've just like taken a vacation in Rwanda on their dime. Right. Um, and so you know, when we think of Rwanda, you think of the genocide, of course. And so I was interested in kind of looking at how a, a society years later transitions out of a dark phase like that. And I, I always like to, one genre that I write about a lot is like um, 
women turning the tables. So women challenging uh, stereotypes that whatever is their cultural stereotypes. So I've written about in Zanzibar, I was writing about women playing soccer, which like women don't traditionally do. Or in Brazil, I wrote about women drumming in drum groups, which they don't traditionally do. So in Rwanda, I found out that it's only men who fish, except because the genocide killed so many men. Now this generation of women have started filling the void and they're fishing. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that was a really interesting story. Um, I really wanted to write it, but I knew it was going to be really visually amazing to be like at sunset on a boat on a lake in Rwanda, you know, sounds, sounds like a nice photo. So I pitched the story to the New York times. They accepted my pitch and then I pressed them and I was like, look, I'm here on a trip with some other journalists and there are photographers in the group and videographers in the group. And is there any way you guys would hire a team to go to be with me? And they did. Uh, and so we had a 360 video woman out there and also a still photographer. And so I, I don't know if you saw the, the video is like, so like haunting almost to hear these women like chanting as they paddle out. Um, and I, I feel very, very proud of that project because basically I felt like I was lifting up the voices of these women who nobody would ever care about or hear about. I also was like providing a job opportunity, an excellent job opportunity to like two other female journalists uh, versus just me alone. And that story ended up on the front page of the New York Times. So I was also just like, you know, I just felt like that was awesome to, for me to be like this random freelancer with like no slick connections or anything, you know, landing right there, like bam, delivered. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of, in my own career, like, this may sound weird, but I think you'll get it. The idea of there's this thing happening somewhere and 99.9% of humanity doesn't know it exists. Yeah. And because I am here, yes, you are going to know it exists. There's something that really cool the- about that that is the driver for me, honestly. Like that's how I know it's a story is if I'm out somewhere and I see something and I'm like, you know, I'm in like Rio and I realize there's like an all female Samba group and it's, I don't know this, but there's never been an all female Samba group because it's only men that do Samba. I didn't know that. Uh, but that's like the reason this group existed. And then I start talking to other people that are like, Oh, there's some other groups actually that do the same thing. And, and I just feel like, you know, I'm not a musicologist. I'm not like an expert on Samba, but the good thing about journalism is you can write about shit that you don't really know about and just like dive into it and figure it out. And, um, and I just like love that because exactly like you're saying, I just feel like I'm, I'm bringing a story that people wouldn't, there's no reason, there's no incentive for anyone to care about how many women are playing Samba in Rio except for the incentive that I give them to read a nice piece of writing about that. And I, I feel like that's like an honor to be able to bring that to people. I was wondering, does, um, I'm going to butcher the name, but I'm going to go for it. Does Zawadi Karakumutima, 32 year old woman fishing person in Rwanda, give a shit that you're writing this for the New York times? Uh, no, (laughs) no. Will she ever see it? So like none of them had emails or anything, but I sent it, there's like a fishing cooperative. So I sent, um, you know, it published after I'd already left. So I sent it 
over to the fishing cooperative. And actually she probably did see it because that story, all of a sudden, all these publications had stories in the next month about Rwandan fisherwomen, yeah. you know? So like, and I was contacted by a bunch of like filmmakers and NGOs and um, all kinds of stuff. So um, they probably like knew that that story got out there for that reason. But I think for those women, it was honestly just their, you know, that's their normal working day. And that was like kind of a new thing to have like these, you know, white girls here with like video cameras. And they're like, yeah, get on the boat if you want. Sure. And you know, that Jersey, the reason they wear jerseys like that over there is because so much clothing is donated from the U S that there are like markets there that are just garbage piles of sports shirts from the U S or whatever. And that's like where people go get their clothes. That's really funny. Let me say this, you, you used the word earlier, and I am fascinated by it. Like, you have chosen what I think most people would say is a, a very exciting career path. And you, you yeah. travel a lot, and you do cool stuff, and blah, blah, blah. And I am, like, I have found in my career, so I, I mainly write books these days, and I used to be a sports writer. And I found the one thing about journalism is it can be a really lonely endeavor. You know, like, yeah. a solitary endeavor. And yep. and I wonder, like, do you feel that at all? Is it is it a price oh. to pay? Does it come with... A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Try to have a relationship with someone when you're traveling to a different country every other week. Right. And in, or try to have a relationship with someone when you're like, Hey, I know we were going to hang out this weekend, but I'm going to cover a hurricane. Um, like it just makes it so it's impossible to sink your life to another person, even if you wanted to. Um, and that goes for relationships or friendships or family or whatever. Um, I have always been like an independent explorer. I'm always like the crazy person who like gets on the boat alone to Tunisia or whatever. Um, and I like that about myself. And, you know, some, some people, some of my friends call me courageous. My mom calls me dumb, but you know, like uh, there's something in my DNA that makes me want to jump and just go for it. Yeah. Um, and so journalism is a good fit for me for that reason. But, uh, have I cried at like 1am in a hotel room in like middle of nowhere, Brazil, because I like don't have anyone around me who cares about me. Yeah. All the time, all yeah. the time. And I think it's freelancing, especially was extremely mentally exhausting because when you're freelancing, you're sorting out all of the logistics on your own. It's on you to get to the place safely and in one piece. It's a hundred percent on you. Nobody else is helping. Nobody else is figuring anything out for you. And so not only do you have the job of doing the journalism, you have the job of doing all of the plotting of the logistics and safety and whatever. And then you also afterwards have to bill. So you have to do all the expenses and stuff, which is like a pain in the ass. And then also it's like, a very aggrieved situation because you're getting paid crap for a huge amount of effort. I mean, I, I quit freelancing because I couldn't do it anymore financially. I was literally losing money freelancing and I was writing for the New York times. So I don't know how anybody is making it as, as a freelancer. And I mean, that's actually after, um, starting last year, I started doing like in individual consultations with freelancers. Um, just where basically I was helping them refine their pitches or like reading over drafts because I just felt like freelancers didn't have any, you know, they don't have the editor's ear in the same way like a staff member does. And so they don't have somebody who is helping them in any way or giving them feedback. And that's something I really missed. Um, so I, I pity, I pity the freelancer in 2020, honestly, like that is, 
not an easy gig. And I think if you don't feel mentally totally healthy, and if you don't have some kind of support network back home that like when you're exhausted, you can go home and somebody's going to make soup for you. I don't think anyone should do that. I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a healthy way to, to live or make money. Does your mom make good soup? She's Italian. What do you think? Wait, <laughs> um, I have a final question I have to ask you. So I used to host a, uh, I used to do a Q&A on my website every week. And this was a question I asked everyone. And I feel like you're the person to ask this. In your career, have you ever thought you were about to die in a plane crash? <laughs> I just recently recovered from extreme claustrophobia, which I did not have ever. It had never even entered my mind that that's a thing anyone has ever had. And then I... This is like two years ago. I was on a plane on a runway. This is a random flight. I was, it was like a two-hour flight in Brazil, like a random work day. I'm on the plane on the runway in Rio at like 9 a.m. And they couldn't get the AC on. And they're like, you know, don't worry. We're working on it or whatever. And then um, the power went out on the plane. They're like, unfortunately, you know, we're having a power issue. Um, but we're all just going to have to sit here. And so we're sitting on the runway. There's no AC. And they can't open the doors because of the power issue. And the temperature is rising rapidly because we're just sitting in the sun on the runway. And people started losing their shit big time. Like women were on the ground praying. People were screaming. People were like uh, hammering against the cockpit. Like it was, it was pandemonium. And I basically had like for the first time in my life a panic attack. I didn't even know what that was, but I was just like – soaked in sweat and like my heart is like pounding and it was like the worst experience it was terrible it was so traumatizing and I came out of that with major claustrophobia that made it so I couldn't fly wow and I'm just like great so my career is over I guess now you know like I'm a travel writer that's what I was doing I was writing doing travel stories for the New York Times so I was like well what what am I going to do now and I was like I didn't want to tell anyone about it either because I was like I don't want to seem like a liability you know like um I had to actually stop everything and go do like extreme therapy to uh, get over it. I had to get with a therapist and have her like lock me in an elevator again and again and again and again until I just got over it. Uh, and it was, I'm very, I'm so happy I got over it, but yeah, that's the kind of thing where you're just like, I mean, that could have happened to anyone, but yeah, if you ask if I ever thought I was going to die on a plane yeah, I sure did. <laughs> I just want to say I was once on a plane and, um, we had to make an emergency landing in Columbus, Ohio. I was flying to Nashville from New York. And the pilot comes on and says, ladies and gentlemen, we have to make a landing in Columbus, Ohio. It's fine, but we're leaking fuel. We have enough. We'll make it, blah, blah, blah. And then he comes back on and he says, I want to thank the passenger in C-23C who noticed the fuel leak. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> Not information the plane needed to know. No. Not an announcement that was needed. Wow. What if that person just didn't show up for the flight that is? Are we all dead? <laughs> what? Also, imagine that person like looking out the window, like, honey, is does doesn't that look like gas? Right. No, it's just me. It's just me. It's okay. <laughs> well, listen, first of all, you're a great, great guest. Second of all, you've, you've made a fan. I think you're an excellent, excellent writer. Thank I love you. Your on your approach and uh yeah, I, I just think you're freaking great. And I appreciate you doing this so much. I really do. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I, you know, I pretty much have never had a conversation about my writing with anyone. So this was kind of fun and groundbreaking. I appreciate oh. it. I want to thank today's guest, Shannon Sims, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow Shannon on Twitter at Shannon G. Sims and read her work at Bloomberg and ShannonGSims.com. 
Also, my new book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty, is available for purchase everywhere. Music is by the Dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>